You are now listening to the December 11th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have forgiveness, sermon, and the God of Abraham. First, let's begin with forgiveness. Hello, my name is Joseph McDonald, and on this program, we're sharing about a special privilege that we have as Christians. This is forgiveness. Last time, we discussed how to figure out whether we have been forgiven by God. Do you remember it? To recap, the way we understand whether we have been forgiven by God is to examine how much we love Jesus. We said that the size of forgiveness and how much I love Jesus go together. The bigger the perceived scale of forgiveness, the more we love Jesus. It was not that Simon the Pharisee in Luke 7 was without sin. He simply could not see how big his sins were. And at the same time, it was not that the woman who wet Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair was particularly more sinful than Simon the Pharisee. It was just that she simply saw her sins more clearly. In this regard, it would be a blessing if I could see my own sins. When we see our own sins, we know we have been forgiven by God, and we can forgive other people. When I forgive others for their offenses against me, I am doing so not because I'm required to do so, but rather because of the grace of forgiveness that I have received from God is so enormous. The offenses others have committed against me looks so small compared to the magnitude of grace I have received from Jesus. To continue thinking about forgiveness, let's turn to Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 through 15. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so must you do also. In addition to all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, Let the peace of Christ, to which you were indeed called in one body, rule in your hearts, and be thankful. In particular, verse 12 tells us that when we decide to forgive others, it is like we are putting on something, something that can help us forgive others. What does that verse say we have to put on? It is a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. The Bible says we have to put this on because we have been chosen of God. Let's think about that more deeply. Let us suppose that there were people steeped in sin. While they were still sinners, they were loved rather than hated by God. They were loved by God rather than rejected by God. They became holy as God is holy. Who are these people? Of course, these people are us. 
The Bible explains we are those who were redeemed by Christ. The verses in Colossians we just read are telling us that if we think we are one of those people, we have to put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These are the clothes for the chosen, the holy and beloved one chosen by God. We have to put on these clothes. Specifically in verse 13, we are told that the people who put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience have to be bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so must you do also. How much does God's forgiveness mean to you? How much has his forgiveness affected you? Completely or only partially? Has God forgiven you for everything except certain sins? If God has done that to you, you also can hold on to a few offenses without forgiving and forgive a few others. However, as we clearly know, God has forgiven all of our sins completely. God has forgiven all of our known sins, our unknown sins, and even those sins that we have committed deliberately. That's why we have to forgive our brothers or sisters that have sinned against us. There is a unique statement in Colossians 3.15. It says, Let the peace of Christ, to which you were indeed called in one body, rule in your hearts, and be thankful. The origin of the word rule in this verse is brabuo. The term brabuo refers to acting as an umpire or being an umpire. Given this original meaning of the word to rule, Colossians 3.15 appears to be telling us to let the peace of Christ be an umpire in our hearts. Having the peace of Christ in our heart is a barometer of if you have forgiven your brothers or sisters or not. Suppose I have the peace of Christ in my heart. The only way to be sure that the peace of Christ exists in my heart is if I have forgiven my brothers or sisters who have sinned against me. By the same token, if the peace of Christ is not in my heart, it means I haven't forgiven my brothers or sisters who have sinned against me. So, the existence of the peace of Christ in my heart can be the evidence for whether I have forgiven my brothers or sisters. Indeed, we are the body of Christ, with each one of us as a part of it. Therefore, if we have not forgiven one another, we would not have the peace of Christ in our midst. Do you have the peace of Christ in your heart? It would be good for us to examine ourselves in this regard. If you love someone whom you once hated, that means love now dwells in your heart instead of hate. Ephesians 5.2 says, And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma. Had Christ not loved us first, he would not have been willing to forgive us. Had he not forgiven us, he would have had no reason to do anything with or for any one of us. However, 
Christ gave himself up for us. He gave himself to God as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. That is the extent to which Christ has forgiven us. If we have accepted Christ, we have been transformed from being sinful to being holy and blameless, and we can have fellowship with him. Christ now treats us as if we have never sinned before. God doesn't hold our sins against us. When God looks at us, he doesn't see our sins. He doesn't say to us, You did this before. You committed that sin at such and such a time at such and such a place. That is not how God and forgiveness work. When we forgive others, we have to forgive them as God has forgiven us. We should not remember their past sins. When we look at them, we should not see their sins that we have forgiven them for. This brings us back to that dark corner in our mind about someone that has committed a sin against us and hurt us, an offense that makes us feel like we should go after that person and get even. Is there someone whom you are still not able to forgive? What is the sin that was against you? Is that sin too big for you to forgive? Is that sin bigger than a sin that you have committed against God? If so, the alternative you choose is to dwell in an uncomfortable relationship with God. Are you okay with that? Is the sin you are not able to forgive worth giving up your relationship with God? Is that sin worth giving up the peace of Christ in your heart? If you love God, you have to love your brothers and sisters. This week, take some time to think about your relationship with God and his forgiveness of you, and your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, and your forgiveness of them. 1 John 1, 20-21 says, If someone says, I love God, and yet he hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Forgiveness. It is a sensitive topic yet a brutally clear topic we cannot escape from. That's all for today. Have a blessed week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. And this prophesied about faith as he saw some of the darkest days of Israel's history. Assyria had taken the northern kingdom of Israel into exile. And and we find that he receives word from God that Babylon will take Judah into exile as well. And then we have Jehoiakim. He's likely king of Judah in in this time of, of peace and prosperity that is also characterized by the king and his people moving away from God, which is resulting in his people committing injustice against one another. And this book covers a conversation between Habakkuk and God, and it's not a tame conversation. It's a conversation about a prophet who's trying to make sense of a world that looks chaotic. Now, just to catch you up to speed, uh, we've seen uh, four movements thus far in this short prophecy. Habakkuk is speaking to God, and you'll remember that first we saw that Habakkuk begins by complaining to God again and again about him sitting idly by as Jews are committing injustice against one another. Finally, as he's waiting for an answer, God shows up in verses 5 to 11. And God responds and says, I want you to raise your gaze and look to the nations and see that nobody is safe from the judgment that I am bringing throughout the nations. And it's going to be through unjust Babylon. And the third thing that happens is Habakkuk then speaks back to God. And when he does, he says, God, will Babylon swallow up the man more righteous than he, especially Judah? And then God responds to Habakkuk again, that the righteous shall live by his faith, but the labors of the proud are destined for the fire on the last day. In verses 2 to 20. Now don't miss this. God's response to Habakkuk's complaint, it looks like his just God is absent as his people are sinning. And, And As he does this, he says it looks like 
in the midst of this, I want God to respond. But when God responds, he doesn't respond in the way that he expects. I mean, do you see that God says, when you put faith in me, when you trust my word that I'm giving you, it does not mean things are going to get easier, right? That's not the prophecy of Habakkuk. No, instead he says, things will get more difficult before they get better. God's response is to declare his absolute sovereignty. He he says, "I, I am sovereign over all things. Even those unjust people are being used as an instrument of my judgment. In other words, the the answer isn't, I'm going to take away your temporal problems that are all around you, but I want to give you a big vision of who God is and the world that he has made and where you fit in it. True faith both sings and rejoices. It both sings and rejoices and fears and trembles as it awaits God's salvation through judgment. If you if you have faith, biblical faith, it, we're told throughout the Scriptures, New and Old Testament, that we are going to both sing and rejoice and fear and tremble as we await God's salvation through judgment. So first, Habakkuk's prayer, in wrath, remember mercy, verse 2. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, the, the prophet, he begins with a short prayer in verse 2 that encapsulates his response to both chapters that come before it, chapters 1 and 2. Now you remember that we left off with God in his temple, his holy temple, and the earth is to remain silent before him. Now here the silence is broken with a song of celebration by God's faithful people in the midst of God's fiery judgments. And you can see the beauty of this. The judgment is coming, and yet the voices of God's people are singing in praise to God. Now look what he says in verse 2 of chapter 3. He says this, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, here again, Habakkuk speaks to his covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. That's what Lord in all caps means. It's the the Lord who revealed himself as mercy and grace to his people back in Exodus 34. He says, you'll be my people, and I will be particularly and especially to you amongst the nations, grace and mercy. Now, I take your work as it shows up here in verse 2 to actually point back to Yahweh's first response to Habakkuk in 1.5. You'll remember he, he opened the Lord saying, I'm not sitting idly by as you said, Habakkuk, for I am doing a work in your days that you wouldn't believe if I told you. And now I'm going to tell you. And this work is the judgment that will come on Judah and the nations through Babylon. And then after that, God says, and then I'm going to judge Babylon for their injustice. See, that nation would fall for their self-sufficiency and brutality against the nations. So there are two judgments that are coming, one against Judah and the nations, and then one against Babylon that was that instrument of God's justice. And he repeats a unique line in the Bible. You see where he says, in the midst of the years, he repeats it a couple of times here. And that, in the midst of the years, has been taken in different ways, speaking of different points of time. Uh, One commentator took it as being between Abraham and Christ, that that's the the years in the midst of which he is is pointing to. 
I think it's more natural to look internally in this book itself and take it as between those two judgments that he's mentioned, that judgment of the nations and that judgment that comes of Babylon. Now you'll remember that Habakkuk began with the prophet saying again and again. He was praying again and again. And notice that he says in this time between the two judgments, revive it. You might be thinking, revive what? What is it that you are reviving and bringing life to? It it literally means make him alive. Now who does Habakkuk mean by him that is to be made alive? Well, I think it goes back to that critical verse in Habakkuk. You remember in Habakkuk 2.4? He says, the righteous shall live by faith. And so here he is actually praying that God would do what he promised to do, which is to uphold the righteous by faith in this time. And you'll notice how the verse ends, in wrath remember mercy. I mean, this is a beautiful prayer. I'm sure a prayer that you perhaps have lifted up before. God, please have mercy on me in this moment, in this time, in this time of struggle. But here it's particularly in this wrath that's been promised by God. The prophet here begins to sing of this reality through the lens of faith in verses 3 to 7 and 8 to 16. And both you'll notice that he begins to speak of God and then he says, and I see this or I hear that, but it's, it's God and then, and then this. Notice first, we find in verses 3 to 7, he says, be reminded of your eternal sovereign God before temporal enemies. Be reminded. Look at God. See, God's coming as he has been praying for God to remember mercy and wrath. Now he has a theophany, a vision of God in verses 3 to 7. Uh, Look what it says. This is a beautiful image. He says this. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Now you'll notice in these first first three verses... It says that his eternal God's uh, glory fills heaven and earth. That's the vision that he gets. His eternal God's glory, it's, it's just saturating and filling heaven and earth. You can see why God's people would have loved to sing this song. They sing and sing asking for God's mercy amidst trembling, and, and then God shows up. I mean, how many of you have been just terrified by life and you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and what a day when Jesus just shows up. Everything gets better on that day if you're in Christ. If not, it's not a good day. But if you are, it's the best day ever. I notice O. Palmer Robinson, uh, he says this. He says here, Habakkuk is actually drawing in these verses that we just read from past experiences of God saving his people. And he's using it to color his expectations for a future deliverance. It's the same thing that we find in Moses' song, in Deborah's song, in David's song. Did you know the people of God like to sing to God about God? Yeah, Uh, it's kind of a history thing. But this really is glorious. Habakkuk sings as though he is transfixed by the sudden appearance of his invisible God. In the transcendent 
reveals himself as imminent amongst them. The eternal God, who is timeless, enters his people's temporal experiences. God emerges from Taman and of Mount Paran in verse 3. Uh, This, I think, is between Edom and Sinai along the same route that the Israelites would have followed in the wilderness as they journeyed from Egypt to the Promised Land. It's where God first made himself known to his people and he guided them. But notice here that Habakkuk calls him, being God, the Holy One, just like he did in verse 112. That's where he declared, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Now here, the Holy One approaching through the wilderness. And as he approaches, it says his splendor radiates from his presence and it reaches up to heaven. And and, and then it's reflected on earth, which results in praise coming back to him from his creation. I mean, he looks a lot like the sun. I don't know if you've ever seen a sunrise, but you see a little bit of light. Things become visible. And then all of a sudden, as it begins to emerge, things get really bright, really quick. And that which was hidden in darkness is seen clearly. And here, it's as though the sun is coming closer and closer in these verses with the power of his glorious presence growing in intensity. You'll notice the glory of the Lord is veiled in his hand. The reason is because of the magnificence of the glory of God. You'll remember that Paul, speaking to Timothy, speaks of God as light, but he also speaks of him as an unapproachable light in 1 Timothy 6.16. God is the one who dwells in unapproachable light. Just as Moses wanted to see the glory of God, and he couldn't let, look directly on it. He had to look at his hindered parts because to look directly on the glory of God is incomprehensible and, and impossible for finite humanity to do and survive. That's the power and the magnitude and the majesty of the glory of God. Here the nation saw plague and pestilence. But it's interesting what F.F. F. Bruce says here about these The nations looked at plague and pestilence as as gods. But as F.F. Bruce says, here in these verses, pestilence and plague are just personified as members of the divine entourage. They are coming as foot soldiers of God, acting as forerunners of the theophany and the other bringing up the rear. They are just preparing the way. They are a parade that is showing the power of the judgments of God. These are agents of God's judgments. In fact, Ezekiel, he speaks of the other members of the divine entourage of God when he shows up in judgment. In Ezekiel 7, uh, 14, 21, he speaks of four deadly acts of his judgment, sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence. And then in the New Testament, when you look at Revelation 6, 8, there's a rider on the fourth, the fourth horse And it said he is empowered to kill a fourth of the earth with sword, famine, and pestilence. See, God delivered Israel from Egypt through pestilence, but God also warned in Deuteronomy 28 that if Israel sinned against God, the curse of pestilence would come upon them. Judgment would come upon the house of the Lord. If you notice in verse 6, though, here in Habakkuk, God's presence comes with a mighty earthquake like that at Sinai. He surveys creation. He measures it. And he shows that he is 
eternal in a way that creation is not. He was the one that brought the mountains out of the ocean. Israel was scattered in exile by Assyria. But as Judah would be carried off into exile, they would sing of their eternal God who would scatter the whole earth. It's a kind of sovereignty and authority that supersedes any human powers. See, his dominion, God's dominion, it knew no end. He didn't have zip codes that sort of hemmed him in as God like the nation's gods did. God's glory is eternal and it knows no boundaries. But catch verse 7. Did you see how the pronouns shift? The pronouns shift in verse 7. We see the instrument of past judgments trembled. He says there, I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Now some have taken these two peoples in, in different ways, but for time's sake, I'm going to just say this likely references Kishon and Midian that we find in the book of Judges. Now if you've read Judges, Judges is an interesting book. It's like this cycle of God's people sinning against God, not obeying the covenant, and then God sending a people of judgment against them, and then God's people crying out to their God, and then uh, right after that, we find God sending a deliverer to rescue them. And then you just wash and repeat. That, that happens again and again. Well, here it finds that these are a couple of the people in Judges that, that do this. First, Kashan, they're the first people to come against uh, Israel as a judgment in verses 3, 8 to 11 of Judges. And it, they're not called Kashan, but they're called Kashan Rishathim. It's the only time Kashan's used in the Bible in another place. And they arose as that first oppressor of Israel sent by God for their sins. Does that sound familiar? Kind of like Babylon, right? Kind of like Assyria. Now, the second people, Midian, seems to appeal to a, a dream uh, that Gideon uh, hears when he's listening to two Midianites talking, sharing about a dream that one of them had about a loaf of barley tumbling into their camp and striking the tent so that it collapsed. And kind of like bowling. It's bowling bread, knocking over tents. And we find that this image seems to be being put, picked up here in Habakkuk when it says the curtains, like that of a tent, did tremble. I told you that word tremble shows up again and again. And here we find the tents of the enemies are trembling. Now, I think that this is contrasting the temporary nature of the instruments of God's justice in the past with our eternally just God. You know, things that tremble, that shake, shake in the presence of the one true eternal God. He does not shake. Uh, you will never find a verse in the book that says that God is shaking in his boots. He doesn't do that. It is earth that shakes. It's people that shake before God in his presence. It's an earthquake that happens when God shows up. I think this is helpful. Your sufferings feel eternal and heavy in this life. I don't know if you've ever had suffering that's felt that way, but it can feel like it's never ending. Like there's no stop. Like it's too heavy to bear. I mean, I think there's a reason that Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weak and heavy laden, Right? Take upon my, my burden and my yoke, and, and I will give you rest. I think there's a reason we, we love that idea. It's because all of us know that we felt the burdens of this life. But in reality, if we are looking through the eyes of faith at the, the burdens of this world, which is something that we have to continue to preach to our hearts, 
We know that on the other side of eternity, the biggest burdens that we face, they will appear as temporary and light, not heavy and eternal. Verse 8 moves to the image of an earthquake, which, as we've seen before, accompanies God's presence often. Like whenever he showed up to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, this song, it sounds a lot like Deborah's song in these verses, in verse 8. You'll remember in Judges 5, 4 to 5, where she says that Yahweh led from Edom to lead Israel to victory over Sisera, saying, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. So when God showed up, there was an earthquake and rain. The clouds indeed poured water as the mountains quaked before the Lord. Heaven and earth are trembling before the presence of God. Mountains tremble before the presence of God. And notice even the deep or sea throws up his hands and waves a white flag before God. He says, we we don't want anymore. We can't take you. There's none like you. Here we find a picture of the power and sovereignty of God. Did you notice that it's not just on earth, but in heaven? The sun and the moon in heaven are paralyzed before the fearsome presence of God. They stop in their tracks. They really haven't done that before, except in the book of Joshua, when he won victory over the Amorites in Joshua 10, 12 to 14. We find that they, they they stood in place as Joshua was defeating the Amorites to the glory of God. See, God marches on in fury and threshed the nations in anger. Why? Why did he do it? Well, verse 13 tells us. He says, you went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. See, God's anger and wrath, they were not ultimately for the earth, but concerning the salvation of his people and his anointed. Now, this verse is a little bit uh, troublesome for some to, to understand. But I think that he's speaking of his people as those who are the righteous who live by steadfast faith, those that he spoke of in 2.4. But who is the anointed? We know that his people are those who are trusting God as they wait the fulfillment of his promises. But who are, is this anointed one that's spoken of here? Well, there, there have been a number of suggestions. I'm going to give you three real quick. Uh, some take the anointed, even though it's in the singular, is speaking of his people, kind of like parallelism. You know, the, your people, you know, the anointed is a singular one. And we've seen that happen in the book of Habakkuk so far. That could be it. In fact, the Greek translation of the Old Testament takes it that way and, and uses the plural of anointed for that. Uh, another way that it's taken is to speak of the king who is thought of as the anointed. So the king of Israel, as goes king, so goes the people kind of thing. Uh, but there's a third option as well that's offered by O. Palmer Robinson. He says this verse should say that God went out for the salvation of your people, but then he changes that for to with the salvation of your anointed. In other words, the anointed was an agent used by God to bring about the salvation of his people, but he had a different experience of the salvation of God's people than God's people did. He he didn't receive all the blessings and benefits of what God used him for. And he understands Cyrus of Persia, who defeated Babylon as that anointed one. Now, I think there can be a case for that made. I, I tend to take it 
as saving Israel and her king. I could be wrong on that. But either way, we know that this anticipates, even though Habakkuk didn't have it in his mind, a greater Messiah that would come, a greater anointed one. Now, it may seem impossible for Judah, when they would be taken into exile, to think of salvation, to anticipate God saving them. But nothing is impossible with God. Not the God who rides the chariot of salvation and scatters the earth. I mean, notice in verse 13, it, it ends with this really violent image of Yahweh crushing the heads of the wicked. Uh, we see some imprecatory psalms like that, where God is, you know, crushing the heads of enemies and that kind of thing. But I think this image, this image is actually picking up an image of God conquering the forces of the chaos like we find in Psalm 74. It's there that he broke the heads of the dragons and crushed the heads of the Leviathan, those forces of evil. He lays them bare from thigh to neck, likely envisioning God splitting this dragon in two, just like uh, Marduk split open Tiamat. But God is envisioned as our great victor in these verses. In fact, in verses 14 to 15, you'll notice Yahweh defeats the children of wickedness with his own arrows. And then he tramples on the waters. Those waters that seem to be warring with God. Here, I love this image. He's just, he's just dancing on the water. He's like, you've got nothing on me. I am sovereign of sovereigns. And everything in this picture points to the power of God. And did you catch how it shifts again in verse 16 to the first person? Habakkuk then says that I tremble before God, before this God. Look what he says in verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. It, trembling in the Bible, it's usually bad. It's used of the panic of a foe who is coming uh, against you in Deuteronomy 2.25 to a, an overwhelming grief in 2 Samuel 18 to shame in Proverbs 29 and divine judgment in Isaiah 5. But it's never really used of a faithful person's response to theophany. It looks like his response is not of awe or praise in the moment, but shame and terror. He doesn't understand why God will not act against Babylon, so he must sit and wait for calamity to come upon them. It's terrifying. God's ways are higher than our ways. And he doesn't in this book get an answer necessarily to why evil exists. Or why injustice is all around him. He doesn't get the answers that he's looking for, but only that God does see evil. That God is just. And that God does bring just judgments. That's the answer. But notice the transition that happens in verses 17 to 19. It's a transition that's happening in the heart of Habakkuk. And, and, and notice what happens. We find here the, the faithful sing of salvation when things look hopeless. And that's what we find him doing. There's a shift in his heart. He's not complaining anymore. He's rejoicing. He hasn't forgotten that things look bleak all around him. He doesn't say like, oh, now I'm pretending that we're at Disneyland. 
No, he says, I, I see the darkness all around me, but I'm seeing it through the new lens, the lens of faith. And here's what he says in verses 17 to 19. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Did you catch that? The, the fruit and the animals of the land? These are two images that are used throughout the Old Testament for the people of God. They were his vine in the book of Isaiah. He, they were the, the sheep of his fold, like we find in Ezekiel. And yet here we find that though those things seem to be cut off from the land, the stall is empty, the garden's empty. He doesn't see reason necessarily in the experiences of his life in that moment, in that temporary setting, to say that God is winning and I'm winning. Yet in verse 18, he says, yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. Why? Why are you rejoicing all of a sudden? Well, it's because he's been meditating on the works of God. He has been thinking about the nature of God. He forgot God. And the world looked like a different place. But when he remembered God, all of a sudden, his complaints turned to praise. It's a glorious thing that's happening in him. He says, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. At first, I was worried about the injustice that was all around me in my hometown. And then I was terrified for the nations and, and our nation with the justice that might swallow us up. And now I am struck by the majesty of God in all of this. And I am understanding that God's majesty and His glory is far more significant than my temporal experience. And this is a God that I can trust. God is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. What a great feeling for somebody that's been feeling so low. In that moment, he says, I trust that God is going to strengthen and save and preserve me. And there's a time coming when he will fulfill the promises where I, like a deer, will be running and jumping up on a mountain to heights I haven't seen before. It's coming. I don't know when, but it's coming. See, when things are high, he trusts in the Most High God to lift him up. To take him to new heights. To be strength in his weakness. I mean, isn't this what we find promised to us in Philippians 2, 12 to 13? Where we're commanded to work out our salvation with what? Fear and trembling. And you're thinking, oh man, well, if, if that is true, who amongst us has hope? I'm so weak. I can't do it. I, I sin, I fall, I get discouraged, I get depressed. I'm so glad he doesn't stop at verse 12. I'm, I'm glad there's a yet or a four in verse 13. Four. We're going to have salvation and trembling with fear and trembling. Four. It is God who is at work in you both to will and to act for his good purposes. 
He strengthens the, the, the ability of our efforts to bring glory to Him in a way that they couldn't without Him. He strengthens our hearts to hope in Him in a way that they couldn't without Him. And brothers and sisters, let me just encourage you today. If you're discouraged and you're thinking you're hopeless and you're low and you're, you couldn't go lower and there's no way to get up and there's no way to be like this deer that is prouncing around on the, the tops of mountains and you're like, these promises can't be for me. Let me just encourage you, consider your God. Consider what the Word of God says about Him, how God has revealed Himself. Consider the report that has come to us in the Scriptures. This is a God that you can count on. Maybe you're discouraged today. And maybe it's because you haven't trusted God to be God. You know, one of the things that we're called to in this text, I mean, that we find this, 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 this Habakkuk, this prophet, he's, he's singing at the end of this, these verses. And Christians, did you notice this? He is rejoicing and he's singing with joy over the salvation of God. It must be from the past, which anticipates the future salvation, because he hasn't seen it yet. He hasn't even gotten defeated yet. And that's coming. So how can he joyfully rejoice as he sees Babylon marching in? How can he do it? How can we do it? How can we rejoice as we see what feels to be defeat all around us? Well, let me just encourage you, we can't do it without God. You can't do it without the means that God has given you. Did you know that joy, like we read about here, is actually a a fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that only comes to the children of God? So if, if you're not a Christian, you're here this morning, this is, this is not promised to you outside of Christ. You need Christ to get the joy. You don't come to Christ for the joy, you come to Jesus for Jesus, and then you get the joy. But if you're a Christian, this is a promise for you. It, it's a promise that, that the Holy Spirit gives His people joy. And that promise of joy isn't in like joyful places only. Did you notice that? There's not like that little descriptor of like, only if you're in a joyful place, in a happy place. No, I, I think it's a, a kind of fruit that looks most beautiful and sweet when you're in dark places like Habakkuk and you're trusting God. That, that kind of thing can only be of God, only from God. And so how do you get the things of God? Well, you, you pray and you ask God, give me joy in this nightmare that I'm living in. Let it be a kind of joy that testifies to your glory and might and power. And you look to God's people, you press into God's people. You ask them to remind you of the faithfulness of God and to encourage you to help you see God when you're struggling to see God. You, you join a community group and you tell people, like, hey, I look happy. I'm not happy. I might look like the happiest person in the room. That's often the case. I'm depressed. I need you to pray for me. I need you to point me to who God is. You need the family of God. You need the word of God. You need the people of God. And we just sing songs about suffering and salvation. Not just suffering. Like, the earth and the world is a dark place. There is no hope. Amen, let's go home. No, it's dark. It's really dark out there, right? Anybody? Dark? Like, pull down your mask and you tell me how dark it is? It's dark. But what a a backdrop for the brilliance of the glory of God that shows up like a light. We rejoice. And as a people of God, we sing about it. You know, when we sing, we, we, we should sing with a, a sense of joy in God's salvation, like we've palpably tasted it, right? 
Like, that's what Habakkuk's calling for. And if Habakkuk can see it as Nebuchadnezzar is coming marching in, like, to take off his family and then throw him to a lion's den, I think we can, like, muster up some joy in God, right? But only in the Holy Spirit. And non-Christian, let me just encourage you as you think about this God that Habakkuk looked to from the darkness of your life. There's a day that's coming that is fearsome, where all will tremble before the mighty presence of God. And he will bring utterly just judgments. There's nobody on the last day that's going to say, I think I found a litigious loophole to get out of that, God. On that day, we find perfect justice where there will be no answer. Everybody will be silent before his perfect justice. And the only, the only hope that any of us have is that we are found in Christ. Christ is the one who makes us just before the just God, who gives us credit of his just deeds. So if you haven't put your faith in that Christ, do it today. The end for those who are not in Christ is utter devastation. It is, it's wrath. It is trembling and fear and terror and experience the horrors of separation of God forever. So before the gates close, put your faith in Christ. Don't leave today without putting your faith in Christ. For those of us who have, church, let's sing like a people we're saved. Let's sing together. From the darkness I called your name into darkness your mercy came you called me out lifted me
has never been There will never be A God like you A love so true There has never been There will never be A God like you A love so can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device just in a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes store now. The following program is called The God of Abraham. everyone, my name is Terry from the God of Abraham. Rebecca served Abraham's servant whom she met at the well. She gave the camels a large amount of water and by that act of kindness, Abraham's servant was able to confirm that she was the woman sent by God. For her kindness, Rebecca received a large amount of gold and accessories and ran home to tell her mother what happened. Then something amusing happened. Here is verse 29 through 30. Now Rebekah had a brother named Laban, and he hurried out to the man at the spring. As soon as he had seen the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and had heard Rebekah tell what the man said to her, he went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. Jacob's father-in-law Laban appears. We can see Laban's personality here. When Rebekah came home and told her mother what happened, Laban was the first one who ran out. Why did he run out? He saw the gold nose ring and gold bracelets and realized the man was wealthy. It would be like a man having 10 expensive cars and someone filled the cars with gas and he gave a 10 carat diamond ring as a way of saying thank you. 
Laban ran out after hearing the news. If Rebecca said a shabby person came and asked for water, would Laban have run out? Laban chased after the riches of the world. We can see this in verse 31-32 as well. Laban said, Come, you who are blessed by the Lord, why are you standing out here? I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Laban showed kindness in this way. What was he thinking? Since that man gave my sister such a great amount of gold for giving water to him and his camels by the well, he probably thought he might also receive even more through his kind act. It wasn't kindness that came from the heart, but from wanting something in return. Knowing Laban's personality, we can tell that his kind act didn't come out of his good nature. He was crafty and overly kind. Verse 32 says the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought for the camels and water for the man and his men to wash their feet. Laban's household was not poor. His household had wealth and servants. However, Laban personally attended to the man. From this verse, we could see how Laban offered heartwarming hospitality to Abraham's servant. In verse 32, we can see that Abraham's servant had men accompanying him. Abraham's servant had the role of a servant, but among Abraham's servants, he had the highest rank. At one time, Abraham thought of passing the family wealth onto his servant. He didn't travel alone but had other servants accompanying him. After welcoming them, verse 33 says Laban served food. Then Abraham's servant said, I will not eat until I have told you what I have to say. This was against manners because in the Near East culture, it was proper to eat first. It was considered rude for someone to not eat the prepared food first and talk about matters later. In this case, the owner of the house would have said, What's the hurry? Since you came from afar, why don't you eat first and talk later? This would be the polite thing to say. However, Laban didn't say that but allowed Abraham's servant to speak. Laban was probably curious about why the servant came. Laban, who was greedy for wealth, was wondering why the servant came to his town with ten camels. He was also thinking how much he would receive since the servant gave his sister Rebecca so much gold. When the servant said he had something to say, Laban said, hurry and tell us. When we continue to read the book of Genesis, we can see this nature of Laban. He's cunning and greedy. He lies without hesitation to fill his greed. He even lies to his family. In Genesis chapter 24, verses 34 to 49, Abraham's servant tells Laban the reason why he came. He said, I am Abraham's servant. Abraham received a great blessing from God and became wealthy. At an old age, Abraham had a son named Isaac, and I came to find Isaac a wife. I prayed to God and asked how to find a wife and as I was praying, Rebekah appeared. I believe that Rebekah is the one God has prepared to be the wife of Isaac. What do you think? Laban and Bethuel answered, This is from the Lord. 
We can say nothing to you one way or the other. After they allowed Abraham's servant to take Rebekah, he thanked God and gave jewelry to Rebekah's family. Early the next day, he took Rebekah and left. This is the summary until verse 61. Let's read verse 62 through 63. Now Isaac had come from Be'er Lahoi Roy, for he was living in Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Be'er Lahoi Roy is the southern part of Negev. When it said he meditated, it meant he was a person who fellowshiped with God. He remembered God, conversed with God, and lived a life of worship. Isaac looked up and saw the camels approaching from afar. Let's read verse 64-65. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. The Jews interpret the scene in a very amusing way. The Hebrew word for got down is nafal. This word can also mean fall down. Therefore, the Jewish rabbi said, when Rebekah saw Isaac, he was so handsome that she fell off the camel. Rebekah recognized her husband-to-be and covered her face with a veil. She was preparing to be a bride. From here, we can see the wedding custom at that time. A bride covered her face. For this reason, in the future, Jacob believed Leah was Rachel since he couldn't see her face and held a wedding. Let's read the last two verses of Genesis chapter 24. Here is verse 66 through 67. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Abraham's servant explained to Isaac how he met Rebekah and how he was able to know that it was God's will. Then Isaac took Rebekah as his wife. He accepted that she was the one God had prepared as his wife. This is how Isaac got married. Next time will be the last session of the God of Abraham. Next time, we'll summarize Isaac's wedding once again and look into the Bible's view on marriage. We will also look at the connection between the wedding of God's son Jesus Christ and the church's bride. Let's think about one thing before we end. In this age, our values of marriage are very different from the values in the Bible. In this age, people consider it very natural for them to choose their own spouse. They think it's abnormal for someone else to choose their spouse for them. People commonly think that they get married because of love. However, let's reflect upon the marriage in this age. They marry because of love, but many people get divorced because they no longer love. The divorce rate is over 50% now. They married out of love, but it's ironic how their families have become broken. Marriage is not done out of love. Marriage is done to love. This is what the Bible tells us. 
Young people in this age believe it is proper to live together before marriage to know the other person before marriage. Let's think about Adam, who was the first human created. Adam didn't marry Eve after knowing her in advance and dating her. He married her the day he met her and began to love. Today, we looked at the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, which was about Isaac's wedding. Isaac and Rebekah didn't marry after knowing each other and liking each other. They married in the Lord and began to love each other. If the couples in this age didn't marry out of love, but married to love, then the marriage will not be broken since the purpose would be to love. We'll talk about this story in a deeper way next week. It would be good for you to prepare by reading Genesis chapter 24 again. I'll see you next week.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.